want to thank you to the young adults, of course, for leading us in music, but we want to give a special shout out to those four young people who were standing here. Such bravery. Thank you so much. God be praised. Would you join me this morning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And I want to read verses 14 through 24. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 14 through 24. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute and whenever it seizes him it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grits his teeth and stiffens out his body and I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it and he answered them "O oh, unbelieving generation how long shall I be with you how long shall I put up with you bring him to me and they brought the boy to him and when he saw him immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth and he asked his father how long has this been happening to him and his father said from childhood and it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Amen. You may be seated. For the next several weeks, I want to begin a series of sermons under the general title, Lord, I want to do better. And I want to take a look at diverse case studies in the Gospels that enable us to recognize that the fact that we want to do better is a high suggestion that we very well may be on the great road to spiritual maturity. But there is this honesty and humility that we must engage and experience to be willing to say to God, Lord, I've recognized that I'm not what I should be and I don't do all that I know I need to be doing.
but yet deep in my spirit, I want to do better than where I see myself at right now. So this morning, I want to do just a brief overview of this one story here, this narrative here in Mark chapter 9. There are several sermons that will come out of this narrative because the whole question of our faith is such a broad, diverse conversation that it will take more than one viewing of this text. But this morning, we want to deal with the sermon subject, Help My Unbelief. Help My Unbelief. I selected this series realizing, as well as believing, most importantly, that this will be a practical, relevant, rubber-meets-the-road kind of approach to the text because all of us have these moments in which we struggle with both faith in terms of believing and unbelief in terms of not believing. We also recognize that some of us at this task achieve quicker than others. We do a better job at it than others. And then there are others who struggle at it and even in the struggle make the decision to abandon the effort to grow because the struggle is extremely difficult. Yet there are those of us who can testify it is indeed a struggle, but I continue with the struggle because at the end of the struggle, I do indeed see progress. I see where I do may have still some level of unbelief, but yet, I am challenged to increase that which I believe God says in terms of the promise because I realize faith without works is dead being alone. So my task is really just to do two things this morning. One, one, I want you to understand that you are not alone in this pursuit of doing better and struggling at it. If you had the opportunity and the tools to be able to look into the lives of the person sitting to your left and right, you will very well probably recognize and realize that we are all struggling just in different areas. But we too struggle with the issue of unbelief. And what I want you to know this morning is that you are not alone in that struggle, but we are likewise fellow comrades in trying to grow in our faith structure. But then there's a second thing I want to make sure to you that you understand. And that is that all of us have moments, seasons of frustration and unbelief, weak faith, and might I add even no faith at all. We come to a point sometimes where we are overwhelmed by the challenge or we have been in a season at such a period in which the faith has weaned to a point where it's almost no more than a drip in the pot. And yet we get to a point where we may even throw in the towel because it has taken so long or it is taking so long for that moment to mature into what we might redeem as progress. We also may look like, as you look at us right now, you look at each of us right now, we might look like we have faith moving mountain kind of faith. But yet beneath us, once you get beyond the exterior of who we are, there are others who without the fact 
will be willing to admit deep inside of me there is a struggle. I am struggling now with something of unbelief, although I may look like on the outside that I can move mountains, but on the inside, I am wrestling with the promise that God has made unto me. And it is my challenge to help you realize, again, you are not the only one. Sometimes we take the option of remaining out of the fellowship because for some reason there is a sense in us that we are the only one in the fellowship who may be struggling with unbelief. It's not that uh, any of us have it all together. Some of us just realize there's no need to me staying home because it's not going to encourage my faith. I might as well go among some other people who do have faith and their words will cause me to gain some faith in return. That is the reason why the author of Hebrews says that we are not to forsake ourselves in coming together with the brethren because we need faith boosting by one another. We need faith encouragement by one another. We need those seasoned saints who have been through those seasons where their faith has waned even to the point of unbelief, but yet they've managed to bounce back, and they've bounced back with the strength of knowing that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so it's not that we have it all together, even now, after 20 years later, being on this journey for that long, some of us can still testify, even 30 years later, I have my moments when I have to ask, Lord, do you realize I'm still down here praying? But I'm humble enough to recognize and to say to God, Lord, I want to do better, but I have to admit I'm in a state of unbelief. And so we are here in this text in which we have a moment in which there are some characters, some characters in the text that sort of helps us understand the importance of realizing that we have not yet arrived to the space of perfection. But yet we are enduring, and thanks be to God, we have evidence in the text to convince us that if we are willing to admit and cry out, Lord, I want to do better, please help me, that's the first step in the right direction. And so there are a number of participants in this text, a number of participants. The first is there's a group of disciples I call group number one that's registered here in verse number two. And that's Peter, James, and John. You know well of reading the gospel accounts that they are critical disciples. They are persons of that inner circle of Jesus. It's important to see how ministry plays out or how even their own personal life plays out in the text because it helps me realize that these guys, even being close to Jesus on a daily basis in the flesh, also struggled with believing what God was doing in Jesus. Can you believe that? Even being right there with Jesus, right there on the scene, right there in the flesh, yet still struggle with this issue of unbelief. They are critical personalities for us to understand in the story. Then there's a second group, and the second group is what I call historical verses. They are in verse 4. They are historical voices because they are from the past. Elijah 
and Moses. Elijah and Moses are yet two examples of us from the old prophets who struggled from time to time with this issue of believing in God. You remember the story of Elijah when Elijah had his most greatest triumphant moment at Mount Carmel when he defeats the prophets of Baal. And yet when Jezebel makes a promise to him that she's going to kill him at any cost, Elijah's faith instantly almost drops, it seems, and he runs off into the wilderness and cries out to God, Lord, take my life because I just can't stand it. I, I'm the only prophet here who's standing for the truth. I'm the only prophet who seems to be persecuted. And I would rather for you to take my life than to allow me to have to engage the challenge of Jezebel. And yet Elijah is brought forth from the past because his historical voice helps us realize even saints of old struggle with unbelief from time to time. And then there's Moses. There's this mosaic personality that we need to have contact and we need to have connection to because Moses depicted from us unto us rather that there are times when Moses even struggled with unbelief. Moses kind of wondered what God was doing from time to time. In fact when Moses meets God on the backside of the desert Moses is invited to come and approach God in the holiness of that space but Moses said I'm having a hard time comprehending a bush that is burning but yet it's not consumed and when God instructs Moses that he's going to have to go back and be the liberator for Israel be the voice for Israel be the connection to come out of Egypt Moses says but I, I can't go because I don't have speech that is adequate enough to be able to stand before the Pharaoh and in fact when the people ask me who sent you whose assignment on you on Moses said who do I tell them sent me and that's when God tells him you tell them I am sent you the God whomever you need me to be sent you because Moses realized that in his assignment he has a struggle and we need Moses although he's the great liberator yet Moses struggled from time to time with unbelief but then there's another voice there's a voice right here in verse 5 and 6 and that's what I call the perpetuous voice of Peter because Peter never stops talking. Peter is always talking but yet Peter although he puts his foot in his mouth from time to time he yet is willing to be the voice of those who are voiceless and he's willing to be the voice of those other disciples who just doesn't seem to have what it needs to be to be able to stand and to speak for themselves. He's called perpetuous by me because his voice is constantly being heard over over and over again so much so that Jesus had to rebuke him before they went to the Mount of Transfiguration because he talks so much that when he did talk he said things that Jesus says that's not you talking that's evil that's talking on the inside of you and he had to address that but we need a Peter we need a Peter in this text because a Peter reminds us that even when you roll with God and you fall off of the horse and you're no longer walking with God God is so gracious and forgiving and loving and kind that when you get back up on the horse he is right there to nurse you back to the health 
in which you need to be. But then there's another voice. There's voice of God himself. Remember, as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to Mount Transfiguration, the beginning of chapter 9, and they are in this moment that we might describe as being a revival. Now, Luke, in Luke chapter 9, says that this is more of a prayer meeting. is where Jesus takes the disciples up to this mountain and they enter into prayer. And yet, in this praying moment, God brings forth the saints of old, Elijah and Moses, and they intermingle and begin to talk with Jesus. And I think that's a bit of a revival for Peter, James, and John because they are so shocked as what's happening on the hill that, that they are trying to figure out what do we do with this exciting moment. In other words, they preempt what we ought to understand, and that is you can't have revival unless you're praying about revival. You can't experience the power of God unless God begins to hear us cry out unto him. And here we are. We're getting ready to have revival in a couple of weeks, and I want to invite you to spend some time crying out to God, praying for the preachers who are invited to preach, but most importantly, that the word of God that's going to be shared is the word that we need for such a time. Time like this. We need to ask God to baptize them in his power and then to revive us, to reform us, to renew us, to restore us, to replace in the sense of that which has been broken, to replenish what we have lost because that's what revival is all about. So much so that when they are on that mountaintop, God speaks and he has but one command. He says that this is my beloved chosen son. And then he says, all I want you to do is listen to him. That's all you got to do. Read closely. Read closely in the text in verse 7. And he says as he closed that conversation, listen to what he has to say. Listen to what he has to say. He's trying to tell us, listen to what the son has to say. Because if you listen, I will not lead you astray nor down the wrong path. But you've got to listen to me. Because if you don't listen, you will indeed go down the wrong path. You will find your growth pattern to be a struggle. In fact, you will, deep, you will sink yourself deeper into unbelief because you just refuse to listen to what I have to say. But then there's another group. There is the second group of disciples I saw. And look down at verse 14. It tells you that when, they, when Peter, James, and John, and Jesus comes off of the mountain, they find a second group. They are dialoguing with scribes, with religious officials, and people who are scattered around. Now, Jesus has a question, and the question is, what are you talking about? And the suspicion may be that the disciples who are there in conversation may be experiencing a combating spirit from those who are religious officials. Why? Because these disciples are radical followers of a radical savior and they go around town doing things that are quite unusual. Opening blinded eyes, unstopping deaf ears, raising people from the dead, taking two fish and five loaves of bread and feeding the multitude of 5,000. I mean, the question becomes, how do you do that in the natural mind. And so it could be that 
that they're being questioned, being combated by the spirit of tradition. How is it that you didn't follow tradition to get to do what you're doing? In fact, the disciples had to admit, man, we didn't do anything. The man brought his son to us and we couldn't cast him out. The demon, the spirit that's alive on the inside of him, there was nothing that they could do. And Jesus says, tell me why you're talking with them because they're not the ones you need to be talking to. You read verse 29, you need to be somewhere praying that you might get what you need to handle the combativeness of the people there. But then there's another group. There's the father, verse 17, the father who has a serious problem. When the disciples are there in converse with the scribes and the rest of the crowd, a father steps out of the crowd and says, teacher, I brought my son to your disciples because he has this spirit that seizes him. Now today, I'm not going to tell you all the nuances and the details about the text. We'll do that next week. But I'm, I'm going to highlight certain words like seizes him, takes control of him, takes complete occupation of his physical and spiritual space, has taken to a point where he is no longer has any control of himself, but he's under control control of another influence it seizes him and throws him to the ground creates chaos in his entire life in other words it suggests to me that Jesus or God should I say allows this kind of issue to come forward to condition the faith of those disciples see God will let combative people challenge your faith because you need to know exactly where you are in terms of your faith condition but nothing shapes it more like God allowing certain things to condition and that condition helps determine what level of faith you may be at. And what's troubling about this entire episode is in Mark chapter 3 and verse 15 and 16, I believe it is, and in Mark chapter 6 verse 7, what they are confronted with, they already have power to handle it. But they're not exercising it because they're too busy watching the moment itself. See, what you have to be careful is that when God is allowing your faith to be stretched and challenged, don't pay a lot of attention to the issue itself. That's just a tool in the hand of God. But pay attention to what makes your faith rise to the occasion to be able to combat that which is standing before you. So we need the father. The father has an issue. I brought my son to you. I told your disciples what's going on. And here's the indictment. But your disciples could not deliver him. They could not bring him out of this state. They could not call out. They could not exercise the authority in which they had. Then you need the son. There's a son in here. The son is in verse 17 as well. He is possessed by a spirit. Watch this. God will never increase your faith and challenge you at the level that you are because you're already at that level. So it's going to take a challenge that's larger than the level to which you are in order to bring you up to the next level. And look at this. This is a level that should not have been that difficult for the disciples to handle because they already have power to exercise exorcisms. 
They already have power to call out demons. See, that's what Mark 3.15 says in Mark 6.7. Jesus says, I gave you this power because when you go out, you're going to be faced with demons, evil spirits. That's why when you're on that job and that evil spirit rise, there's no need for you to retrieve back in the corner. You've got to stand. You've got to stand and look that demon in the eye and use that power to which God gave you. Remember what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in Mark chapter 16, Jesus says, I gave you power, authority to tread upon scorpions. That simply meant that you got the power to look at scorpions and serpents, not literally, but listen, what he's trying to say is you have the authority living on the inside of you to look at the drama that's taking place in your life and say in the name of Jesus this is it this is not going to happen anymore you're going to leave this space you're going to get out of my life you're going to get out of my family you're going to get out of my household you're going to get out of anywhere near me period in the name of Jesus that's where your power is right there in that name of Jesus that that's where your power is not in Murphy not in anybody else but in the name of Jesus you look that issue straight to straight and God will work it out so you need the son who is beyond your own strength but watch this you got Jesus who is right there in the center of all of these movements right there says verse let me see says verse here uh, he's in the middle of it but Jesus is doing something in the midst of every one of these movements he's doing something verse 19 says when he listens to the man's response he's angry he's angry and disappointed because look at the verse look at the verse verse 19 of chapter 9 of Mark he looks at the disciples and he says to them you are an unbelieving generation how, how, how long must I be with you? How long do I have to put up with your unbelief? Why? Because you have enough evidence in your history to know that if I said it, I'm going to do it and that I'm not going to do it in your time frame, but because I'm a sovereign Lord, I already know when I'm going to work out what I have to work out. See, Jesus sort of inadvertently borrows from Numbers chapter 13 and 14 where the Israelites are being sent 12 spies into Canaan to spy out the land that they might find out if God's promise is true and that is you are going to have Canaan I'm going to give it to you but Moses says we need to go in and see what's in there and when he sends these 12 spies in they go in and they see things just as God has said but here's something amazing that happens when they come back 12 of them, when they arrived back, 10 had a different testimony than two. That's why it's not always favorable to be in the majority. Sometimes you need to stand in the minority. The majority says, listen, it's true. That land is full of not only milk and honey, but the grapes are so lustrous in their presence that it took two of us watch this now, two of us to bring back the evidence that the land is as fruitful as God said it was. But 
Moses. We can't go in there. We can't go in there and we can't claim the land because there are giants there. And the fact that there are giants there, that says to us that we are like grasshoppers in the eyes of the giant. Now, you read Numbers 13, it will tell you very clearly that no one said that they looked like grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants at all. They call that upon themselves. You got to be careful. When you wrestle with unbelief, have you noticed you call yourself stuff that you know that you're not, but yet because you're wrestling with unbelief and you are there, you say things that you know doesn't apply to you. I'm not this and I'm not that. Most importantly, I can't do this and I can't do that. And here's a famous one. It will never happen for me because it will never come about for me because it never turns out that way for me. That's just the way it is. See what unbelief does? It causes us to change our speech. And when they looked into the land, and watch this, and brought back evidence. And that's what God is saying to somebody this moment. I understand that you got unbelief, but how do you have unbelief to the point where you are when you got evidence all across your life that I've been good to you, that I've been blessing you, that I opened the door, that I shut some door, that I supplied the need, that I made a way for you. I gave you a promotion. I gave you that house. I gave you that job. I gave you that car. I gave you that mate you have. I gave you the children you have. You've never been without. You've never had to wonder if the bill would be paid. I supplied all your needs and yet you wonder in unbelief and because you got a giant in the middle of your life right now you don't tell yourself that you look like a grasshopper in the place of the giant. You look at the giant and say in the name of Jesus this might be a large moment that's larger than I am but greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't you dare look at God and say, I can't believe your promise is true, but you better back up and say, God, you said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm going to wait until my change comes. You got evidence. You got evidence. You got evidence that God has fulfilled his promise. And yet we bathe ourselves in unbelief. And Jesus rebuke those disciples right then. He said, I'm tired of putting up with your unbelief. But he came not just to, to rebuke them, but he came also to restore the boy. Look at verse 25. After the episode in which the father had told Jesus about what the son was going through and what the evil spirit was doing to the son. Jesus walked up to that boy. And look at the text. And it says to him in verse 25. Now watch it now. He speaks language of positive reinforcement, but language of boldness. He said, you deaf and you dumb spirit. You are a muting spirit, deaf, but you also are a dumb spirit. And look what he says. I command you. They went right over your head. Watch this. I command you. 
Jesus is saying, listen, don't let unbelief rob you of the proclamation of your voice. But you look at evil. Don't back up from evil. Don't push out the hands and say, evil, let's, can we all just get along? Whenever you have evil that is present in your space, Jesus told him on another occasion, when you sweep that devil out, if you ain't careful, he'll come back seven times worse than he was when he was there before. He says, you've got to take authority. And I command you. That reminds me of grandmama. You know, grandmama didn't have a whole lot of words. But when grandmama told you to do something, there was command behind that word. Oh, no, she didn't tell you three, four, five times. She didn't, sit, and she didn't tell you, let's sit down and talk about this. Let's see if we can iron out this difference. She didn't say, that. come on, let's have a cup of tea. Let's have some cookies. And Oh, no, she will tell you, I said, and you're going to do what I say or else. And you did not want to know what the or else was going to be. But past experience had already told you, you knew what it was, you didn't want to experience it again. But she took authority. And some of us got stuff in our lives, we got drama in our homes, we got kids going from east to west, insane. We got folk on the job that done completely lost their mind. We got friends all around us that's just doing stuff that's uncharacteristic. And I believe it's because we who have the authority and the power to dismiss that evil in our space don't do it. And the text says, I got to follow Jesus. I command you, says Jesus, to come out of him. Bible says that spirit came out and Jesus says when I command you to come out look at the last line of verse 20 don't come back again see because Jesus knows that when you start to move toward restoration you got to clean out all of the old stuff and you can't let it come back it's almost like a project of restoration. You know, I've just used metal as an example. When you go to redo metal, you've got to sand it all down and, and you've got to buff it all out. You've got to get all that old paint and that old stuff off of it. And if you don't, when you go back to apply the primer and you miss a spot, you've got to go back and get it all off because when you're trying to restore, you want it to look like the original as much as you possibly can. And I think God is trying to tell us in this story, your unbelief is existing only because you won't do what you got to do to get the unbelief out. Watch this. So now Jesus says, I came to restore, but watch this. I also came to challenge these disciples and you to reflect. Look at verse 29. Because when Jesus said what he said, the disciples later on got along with Jesus in the privacy of their move and said to Jesus, let me ask you a question. How come we couldn't do what you just did? And I believe Jesus says, oh, no, you, you could do it. You, you could do it. But you see, you wouldn't exercise what I already gave you. 
watch, watch this point, church. We already have everything in us that we need to be victorious. My greatest chapter of love in the Bible is Romans chapter 7. And I'll tell you why. Because at least there, Paul, who is considered to be the preeminent theologian of the New Testament, at least he admits that I have a spiritual challenge in my life. Don't know what it was. Don't know what the issue was. But you listen to his language. He cries out the good that I want to do. I don't find myself doing that. But the evil that I don't want to do, find myself doing that all the time. See, listen, this is the great New Testament scholar who says to us, I know people in centuries ahead of time is going to try to act like I'm this perfect saint, but I'm here to tell you, read Romans chapter 7, I got issues in my own spiritual life. There is something that bothers me, says Paul, and it makes me do what I don't want to do. That's why I told you you're not alone in your spiritual unbelief. You, you got fellow comrades who struggle likewise as well. And, and maybe it's, it's good for us not to know the particularity of Paul's challenge because that gives us an opportunity to sit into that space that it could be any kind of challenge that we might have. And look what Jesus does. He causes a rebuke to the disciple because he's frustrated with him. Then he restores, and he restores by bringing back normality to the boy by removing his nemesis. But then he calls the disciples to reflect. See verse 29? He looks at them and he says, listen, you couldn't do it because you also have to understand Remember all those times I took those little trips up into the mountain all by myself at night and wasn't nobody with me? I went to talk with the Father and y'all were looking for me. And you, Master, do you not know people looking for you and there are folk who need to be healed? And I understood, yeah, I know they need to be healed, but I need to talk with the Father because I need an anointing. Even though I got it, I need to be refreshed where I am. And he says to them, this kind of challenge, because, look, there are some things you can look at and call it out, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. You ain't got to wrestle. In fact, you don't even have to look at it, just in, in passing, in the name of Jesus. Get out of here. Go, boom, gone. But there's some things you have to anchor your feet in the ground, and you have to look directly at it. You have to put on your armor. You have to fight like a warrior and say in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says when it comes to that kind of stuff, he says, look at verse 29. This, this, look, look at the text. Look at the particularities of the text. He says, this kind don't come out on its own. Now when he said this kind, he means this level of spiritual warfare. You can't play around with this. You, you can go up there if you want and start talking all that stuff and you ain't prepared, but it will knock you out. This kind only comes out by prayer. 
So y'all didn't shout on that one. See, listen, Jesus said, listen, the power that you need to overcome, you need prayer power in the prayer room. You need the anointing of God to be on you so that when you face the challenge, you don't have to reneg. Now, facing the challenge doesn't mean that I'm not nervous. Doesn't mean that I'm not a little scared. But the power on the inside of me handles my fear. And by handling my fear, it enables me to push forward and to fight. There's an interesting thing about people who fight when they think they're drowning. They're fighting because they think that's the best way to get back up to the surface. When those of you who swim know you don't want to fight, your body weight, if you just relax, will push you right back up to the surface. Now, there's a couple things you got to learn how to do. You got to learn how to hold your breath while you're under the water. But that's fine. Because here, the analogy is, God says, that's why I let you get into some spiritual fights to teach you, first of all, how to hold your breath. See, I give you the spiritual apparatus you need to breathe. And what I need to breathe is the Spirit of God that helps me breathe. That's why people say, man, I didn't know how I got that thing. I mean, I was losing my breath. I just felt like I was losing all my strength. And then all of a sudden, I just got strength from somewhere. I, I just got inspiration from somewhere. I just got more energy than I ever knew. That's because God taught you how to hold your breath. Because this kind only comes by prayer. I'm just here to tell you, we perpetuate. Listen, when Peter, James, and John was on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw that moment. Notice what Peter did. Peter said, Lord, it's so good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's institutionalize this moment. Let's put three memorials up here. Well, first of all, you can't put three memorials in heaven. See, the Mount of Transfiguration was moved from its temporal space to an eternal presence. You can't put permanent structures up there. Jesus said, I don't want, you don't need a permanent structure. This, I don't want you to create monuments. I want you to create a movement. See, in that movement... This moment inspires you to move forward and to walk out of here in victory. And so as I reflect, and the text says that when Peter saw that in reflection, Peter, the Bible says, said that because he had fear, didn't know what to say. And you ever been that way? We say stupid things sometimes when we don't know what to say. I've done that. When the moment just, woof. Frightened you think, I don't know, say something stupid. And then that little, man, why did I say that? was so stupid. That's what happens. But the reflection enabled the disciples to realize that the power that they need is wrapped up in a prayer closet with God. Some things, Jesus says, only comes by fasting and praying. I want to tell you, some of your unbelief challenges that you have, you won't overcome them until you turn down your plate and go into your secret closet. 
See, the turning down the plate suggests, Lord, I'm just willing to sacrifice and to give up what I think I need naturally for a few moments that I might gain spiritually what you have in store for me. And then you need the prayer intimacy because you need to learn how to talk with God even while you're going through the storm. See? And when you know how to do that, no matter how raging the storm is, you can have peace in the midst of it. So everybody else is losing their mind, freaking out, and you just chilling like, it's all good. God's got it all under control. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord's going to do. Whatever the Lord's going to do, I'm just here waiting for God's deliverance. Let me tell you three things and I'm done. Number one, the disciples depicted for us something that helps us realize that there are certain things that happen often to us that keeps us from getting better, from improving as disciples, as a human being, as a husband, as a wife, as a person who works on a job, as an employee. There are things that keep us from getting better, and it's right here in this text. Watch this. The first one is uncertainty. Uncertainty. Look at verse 6 in the text. Verse 6 signals to us that there is an uncertainty among Peter. He doesn't know what's happening at the moment, and so he doesn't know what to say. As I said before, he just blurts out something. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says that they're wrestling what Jesus said in return when he told them, now what you saw on this mountain, don't tell anybody because you got to keep it a secret until I have died and rose again. And their question is, what does he mean by this rising again? They are uncertain as to what resurrection means. And we got to know exactly what it means because it's what we participate in every single day. Because when you lie down at night and you arise the next morning, that's God's favor of resurrection in your life once again. They couldn't see it. See verse 11? They asked themselves, why is the scribes? saying what they say in reference to Elijah, that he must come first. And that's Jesus saying, listen, they are only discussing what prophecy says. Oh, this is good right here. Only discussing what pro prophecy had said that Elijah, the forerunner of John the Baptist, must come first before I arrive. And that's what happened. Elijah came and they denied Elijah. John the Baptist came and they killed him. And now I'm coming, and they're going to kill me as well. And I've been trying to tell you that I'm not here to stay forever. I'm just here temporary, just to be here to do what God wants me to do. And my assignment is to come, serve humanity, and then go to the cross, die. But guess what? I am going to live again. And see, in that prophecy is the context for us to bathe ourselves in. That is, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we may die spiritually sometimes, we always come back to life. Because God is a God of resurrection and God is a God of restoration. So sometimes God just has to resuscitate us. He just takes and breathes some fresh air into our lungs to bring us back. Sometimes our heart has become so cold that God has to shock us to get it back beating to where it needs to be. And then sometimes we just flat out cold dead and God brings us back to life. And God does that 
because there reigns in us uncertainty. Watch this. But the uncertainty at least is honesty. Because verse 24 says, the father had to admit, Lord, I believe all that stuff about you, all the stories I've heard. That's the reason why I brought my son to your disciple, because I heard you know how to heal the sick and raise the dead. You know how to put back broken arms, and you know how to bring folk back. But, but I brought my, disciple, my son to your disciple, and they couldn't do anything. And look what he says, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. He says, I ain't going to fake it. I'm not going to go to church looking good, smiling. I'm not going to act like I got all. I'm, I'm going to admit to you, Lord, I have unbelief. I'm struggling. And they were struggling with what did the mountain mean? What does the resurrection mean? And they knew that they probably need to hear to the words of Solomon in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Seek wisdom. When you are uncertain, find Pursue wisdom, says Solomon. Get wisdom, for the lack of wisdom will keep you from getting better. Because you can't do what you don't know. There's a second thing, not just uncertainty, but they also lacked understanding. We lack understanding. Someone has said that a lack of understanding does not hurt as much as the lack of effort to understand. In other words, it's not so much that we don't have understanding, it's our failure to pursue, to grasp understanding. Somehow in the text, in both Old and New Testament, I see God addressing this issue of the lack of understanding. God points to Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, and tells Isaiah to tell Israel a couple of things. And, and listen to what he says to them. Tell them they got ears... They hear, but they don't hear. They got eyes, they see, but they don't see. Tell them also in verse 10 that their heart is insensitive to my direction. Therefore, he says in the text, their ears are dull, their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they might see. And in seeing and in hearing, they might be healed. That said to me that God was saying, you know what? They don't want to be healed. They don't want to be made whole. That's the reason why they hear what I'm saying and they don't hear it. They see what I'm doing and they don't see it. Let me tell you how I know that. I, I, here's a quotation by Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, who says, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Kierkegaard says, no, your problem is you know that if you read it, you'll understand it. But if you understand it, you got to change your life and you got to change your attitude. You got to change your perspective. And we don't like change unless change. Is beneficial to us and I'm here to tell you God will squeeze you God will allow circumstance to play out in your life until you come to a, a point where you're willing to change that you might experience the blessing of God and if 
If you want to grow in your faith, change has to take place. Einstein says that I don't, that I didn't arrive at my understanding of fundamental laws of the universe through my rational mind. In other words, Einstein, Albert Einstein is reminding us when it comes to this idea of faith, you can't grasp that with a rational mind. That's going to take your spirit, man. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man doesn't get with the spirit thing, doesn't understand it. But faith is a supernatural thing. See, it's, it's supernatural. That, that, that's why our ancestors, check this out, had less and did more, and we got more and do less. <laughs> that's because by them having less, they had to see what they couldn't see. See, they could see it in their imagination, but they couldn't see it in the manifestation. And yet they did more because they had to walk by faith. We have more, but do less because if we don't see it, we don't believe it. So that's why the Bible says in Hosea chapter 4, and I think it's verse 6, my people perish because they lack knowledge. In the Psalms, in the Proverbs, I think it's where Solomon says, we perish for a lack of vision. So I got to be willing to recognize that even though I don't see it in the manifestation now, I got to see it in my imaginary world. And that's my faith world. That's my supernatural world. I don't see it. I hear Walt Disney. I, I see it, but I don't see it. If Walt Disney only could have lived to see his vision come to pass. But he saw it. And everyone else experienced it. It's because faith is the substance of that which is only hoped for. But it's evidence that I don't see. That's why when you talk about unbelief or you want to do better, you have to see yourself doing better. And being better and getting better and loving better and living better and walking better and talking better. I got to see that because if I don't see it, I probably won't do it. So this text says to me that the lack of understanding kills us. And Jesus in Matthew 13 quotes this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Because the disciples raised the question, Jesus, why do you always teach in parables? And I just paraphrase what Jesus said. That's because they hear me, but they don't hear me. And they see me trying to tell them a story, but they don't see what I'm saying. Their vision is cut off, and they don't hear what I'm saying. And God tells Isaiah again, Isaiah 5, 13, well, they're going into exile because they don't have understanding. They don't want understanding. Let me tell you this one thing, then I'm done. Your, your ignorance is the only weapon that Satan possesses against you. Your ignorance is the only weapon that Satan possesses against you. Proverbs 4 and 7 says, uh, wisdom is the principal thing. Get wisdom, but most importantly, get understanding. So what I want you to do, this is what I want you to take away. Number one, choose, choose to learn. Because when you choose to learn, you choose to do better.
choose to learn. Number two, commit to learning. Commit to learning. Because when you commit to learning, you're going to be better. Commit to learning. And number three, when you choose and commit, clarity comes. What is blurred in your vision gets cleared out because the Holy Spirit now through the word of God has the word to help clarify what seems to be fuzzy in your journey. See, we wrestle with this issue of, of struggling with finding time to read scripture. That shouldn't be a struggle for you. I don't struggle with finding time to take a bath. We don't struggle with time to find to eat, time to find to go to the store. We don't struggle with time to pay the mortgage. We know that the first, you better pay it, or else if you wait too late, there's a late fee. See, see how we, we, we make up excuses. And here, the text is trying to tell you, you need to choose and make time for the word of God. Now, why is this important? Romans 10 and 15. Faith comes by hearing Hearing the word of God. You're not going to do better outside of scripture. Because it's scripture that helps set the parameters of what you want to allow in. And it helps you set the goal of where you're intending to go. I need scripture because that's how God helps me to see where I am. It's the gauge that helps me determine where I am in this walk. And when I have that radiating in my life. I'm moving in the right direction. Then there's a third thing. Not only uh, does the issue of uncertainty keep us from getting better and the issue of the lack of understanding, but the mere fact of unbelief keeps us from getting better. The disciples struggled with this kind of attitude. But the man did as well. He says in verse 24, Lord, I believe, but help our unbelief. Now, here's a little nuance, and then I'm, 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 we're going home. Here's a little nuance. Look with you me if you will back at verse 22 listen to this I'm gonna see if you catch it if you don't catch it I'll tell you what it is l listen to this in verse 22 of chapter 9 so Jesus tells the man uh, something very interesting listen to what he says he says he, the man says to Jesus this thing throws my son into the fire and into the water and is trying to destroy him listen to the man the man says but but if you if you Lord can do anything Take pity on us and help us. That's the easy part. Now look at the next verse. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, if you can. Now, I want you to notice those three words. And I want you to notice the punctuation mark at the end of those three words. It's not a period. It's not a question mark. See, listen, normally, if someone said to me, Murphy, you, you can do this if you, if, you, if you want to. We can make this work if you want to. And I would say in return, if I could, that's what we would normally say. But look what Jesus says. No, if you can. See, Jesus says, I'm not going to let your unbelief determine me. He turned that thing around and said, no, it's you. This thing depends on you. See, look, look what he said. And if you get you right, look what he says. All things are 
possible to those who believe. But you got to get you in the right space of thinking. You have to work on your thought patterns. And that's why Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, we have to make sure even if unbelief is there, you change it by thinking on those things. Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honest, whatsoever is of good report, says Paul, think on these things. That thing that caused my faith to move forward. And all Jesus was saying was, man, if I can get you to believe, I can open some doors. If I can get you to believe, I can make some ways. If I can get you to believe, I can get you to see the impossible. If I can just get you to believe, I can make some stuff happen you would never dream of if I could just get you to believe. And then he told them earlier in terms of how much all I need for you to believe is yet the thought of a mustard seed. And then Paul tells us in Romans 10, I think it is, all of us got a measure of faith. It may not be any more than that, but you got it. And Paul says, activate it. Make it work until unbelief is time to go. You've been living there long enough. Because if you're not careful, next week I'm going to tell you what happens when you let unbelief hang around. Remember the question that Jesus raised to the man? How long has he been this way? Since he was a child. Ooh-wee. That's going to be something next Sunday. How long have you been the way that you are? Here you are 50 years later still dealing with the same spirit. Lord, help you. thank you for the word.